And as we get closer and closer to the second coming, we can expect more of God's goodness, his blessings, and powerful things he's going to accomplish through us. The name of the sermon today is called Exodus Excuses. Exodus Excuses. That's very interesting. I've been trying to do this entire week, a lot of archaeology studies. I've been calling up Andrews, been calling up Southern, been emailing my seminary friends, trying to get information about the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is a very interesting book. Now, when you go to modern archaeology, secular modern archaeology, they tend to validate biblical archaeology until the biblical story starts getting into the miraculous. And it is usually then that secular archaeologists will back away and say, or come up with some natural explanation. For example, I was studying last, I was studying uh, earlier in the week about Exodus, and I was watching a documentary, and they were trying to explain that the ten plagues as being the result of a volcanic explosion that took place. Now you think about it. Either the Bible is absolutely 100% telling the truth about it, or it's just making up the entire thing. It can't be both. Amen? And so what we're going to be studying the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into the book of Exodus. And I have a very important reason why. Take your Bible, go to the book of Revelation. Revelation. And I want you to see something in the book of Revelation that I believe God wants his people to understand like never before. Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 16 is about the seven last plagues. And next week we're going to get into the plagues. It's going to be very interesting. But I believe the book of Revelation gives us a reason why we need to study the book of Exodus. Go to Revelation chapter 15. I'm going to start going a little bit faster, so make sure you're paying attention. Starting with verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven what? Seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is what? Complete. Now watch verse 2. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the what? The beast over his what? Image over his what? Mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now watch verse 3, because it's extremely important. They sing the song of who? Moses, the servant of God, in the song of the Lamb. Now notice this. This is not talking about people who have already come before us. These individuals found in the book of Revelation are specifically individuals who've had victory over what? The mark, the beast, his image, his number. Sure, we can connect these people to the dark ages, but specifically, this group of people are individuals who are living at the very end of time, who have made it through the plagues. These individuals are singing the song of who? Moses. Folks, we need to understand the song of Moses. Can you say amen to that? And so what we're going to be getting in today is going to, is the story of Moses, and this is going to get into probably two more sessions next Sabbath and the Sabbath after, and this is going to prepare us for the next series that I'm going to be starting, and it's going to be called A New Look at the Sunday Law. The new, a New Look at the Sunday Law. And I think you're going to get some very valuable information but I want to let you know the devil is going to do whatever he can to make sure that you are not part of this experience. Folks, determine in your heart, purpose in your heart like Daniel, that you will follow the Lord. Amen? And you're going to hear some things that are going to challenge you, even challenge traditional thoughts. 
However, you're going to find this backed up in Scripture and the spirit of prophecy, and I really believe you're going to be blown away by what you're going to hear. All right, now let's take a good look at some of the archaeology, some of the discoveries uh, when it comes, or the history, I should say, of the book of Exodus. All right? We do have a date for the Exodus. Solomon described the Exodus taking place 480 years prior to the fourth king, fourth year of his reign, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. This information, by the way, comes from the boys from Andrews University. The date for the Exodus would then be about 1450 B.C. Further support is found in the book of Judges. The Pharaoh who fits this scenario, forgive me for my grammar, who did not know Joseph and ordered the destruction of the Hebrew babies would have been Thutmoses I. This Pharaoh is what most scholars, most archaeologists believe was the Pharaoh who was responsible for the death of these Hebrew babies. He was the Pharaoh that the Bible says in the book of Exodus, I believe it's chapter 2, who did not know Joseph or Joseph's influence, you could say. Joseph and his, descent, his family got into Egypt during the time of famine, right? Do you remember that story? And these individuals had an influence over Egyptian society. However, when that king, who was sympathetic towards Joseph and the other Israelites, passed away, the very next king was not. And this is Thutmosis I. Here's a picture of him that's actually in the British Museum. And you're going to see something very interesting next. also. Thutmosis I's daughter was Hashefzad, who became a ruler when her husband, Thutmosis II, died. She was known for being an out-of-the-ordinary out ruler, breaking from Egyptian tradition. She did not have any male children. Now, this is very important when you are a ruler to have a male heir. Heir, excuse me. <laughs> She did not have any male children and would have become a likely candidate to adopt the baby Moses. This is probably the reason why when she saw that baby Moses, who was in that little ark, walking by, she felt that this was a gift from God and this was going to be the way for her to continue her royal lineage. However, based upon um, excavations and archaeological studies, most archaeologists believe that she was actually murdered. Murdered by who? It's very interesting. When you take a good look at Thutmose III, he was the son of the former pharaoh, Thutmose II, and a lesser-known concubine. This was somebody who was not Hashefzad. She could not, she did not have any male children. So this pharaoh had another concubine. He eventually started to reign after the death of Hashefzad. He was called the Napoleon of Egypt. He was also known for his extensive military campaigns. He was called Egypt's greatest what? Conqueror, as well because of his capture of 350 cities during his raid. Archaeology reveals that this Egyptian society boasted of his abilities as the greatest warrior of his own army. There is so much said about this particular pharaoh. This was the pharaoh who lived during the time of Moses, during the time of Exodus. Something very interesting to note as well as this. That's his picture right there. Interesting, thing, interesting fact about the mummy of this supposed Exodus pharaoh was that his mummy, when exhumed, was that of a 40-year-old man which does not coincide with the 50-year-old, 55-year-old monarch. Now, why would that be interesting? Well, what most scholars were believing was that when Pharaoh went into the Red Sea to chase after the Israelites that he was completely destroyed and the remaining army did not want to come back with the body, without the body of the Pharaoh. Well, the Red Sea was very deep, so they just, what most scholars believe was that they grabbed a body 
of one of the soldiers and stuck him in there, wrapped up the mummy, and then took it and said, this was the Pharaoh. We have his body. If the soldiers came back without a body, they were in big trouble. So it's a very interesting fact to know since most scholars look at this and actually quite confused. Well, we know from the biblical account this could work with that. Also, his younger son, Amenhotep II, ascended to the throne after his death. It's very interesting. This Pharaoh, by the way, was very anti-Semitic as well. He had a hatred for the Jews. Very interesting. Notice, it's not Emhotep I. Now, why would that be interesting? You've never read the book of Exodus? Yeah, scholars believe it's because his first son was probably killed during the very last plague. It's very interesting. Very interesting. So when we take a good look, you see a lot of consistency with, although Egyptian archaeology is very notorious for being very confusing, there's so much inconsistencies between different scholars, but just in bringing them all together, this is what most scholars, biblical scholars, are honing in on. It fits with the biblical record, and it seems like this works with what we learn from the book of Exodus. But let's take a good look at the book of Exodus. Let's get our information from the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? Let's find out about Moses. Take your Bible and let's go to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And we're going to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. All right. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know what? Joseph. This was the Pharaoh who came after the time of Joseph. This Pharaoh began to notice the Israelites growing as a group of people. He became very worried, called his counselors, and began a process to suppress these people. He thought if we give them hard work, they're going to want to leave Egypt. They're not going to grow. Well, the opposite took place. The Israelites were like rabbits having babies everywhere. They continued to have more and more children, and this Pharaoh became so worried that he actually ordered the destruction of the Hebrew babies. It's very interesting because one scholar said it this, he said that what Satan probably thought was that this was supposed to be the Redeemer who was supposed to come from the seed of the woman found in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, you see the exact same thing take place when Jesus was born. What did that, what did that king order? The destruction of babies, Right? He was wanting to make sure the Redeemer was not going to be born, trying to destroy the lineage. And it's very interesting. So you see, this is what's happening in Egypt. There is slavery taking place for hundreds of years. And at this very moment, this very moment, babies are being killed. And so what one wise woman does, she decides to hide her baby. And this baby, the Bible says, was beautiful to look at. There's no such thing as an ugly baby, amen? And so this baby was so cute, and they took the baby, she hid the baby, and as she was there, the sister just watched the baby, just to keep an eye on baby brother, and there walked the Egyptian princess. She saw this baby, she wanted to take care of this baby, she did not have a male child, so she called for a Hebrew woman who happened to be Moses' own real mom, she came to care of the baby until the child was grown, enough to go back to the Egyptian society. And there, young Moses began to be primed and prepped to become the ruler of Egypt. It's very interesting. You know why scholars were saying, when they look at Hashefzad, all, um, all her artifacts, you know what they find? Her face has been defaced. They really believe that it was because the second king had a hatred. The reason why is probably because 
he was going to be replaced. He was not going to be the ruler. She was prepping Moses to be the ruler. In fact, this coincides exactly with what Ellen White says, that Moses was going to be the pharaoh. However, Moses did not fall in line with, you know, the previous pharaohs and the previous individuals who were being prepped to become the rulers of Egypt. He didn't worship those gods. He was known for being stubborn. And so one day when he saw the oppression of his people, he, he intervened in the matter, and he ended up killing the Egyptian. The Egyptians found out. He took off running, and he fled into the desert. And there he remained for about 40 years as a shepherd. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. Moses understood that he had a very special plan for God's people. This was no question to him. He was being raised with this thought. And as he grew and became a powerful military commander, when he saw the oppression of his people, he tried to carry it out the same way, the way he had been taught as an Egyptian to deal with problems, through force. And when he did that, it ended up to his own demise. Took off running, and there he met a beautiful woman at a well, and then he ended up marrying her, and there he began to just be a shepherd. Now this is where it gets very interesting. Now this is where we're going to start getting into some interesting Bible study, okay? Moses has been in the desert 40 years. I want you to see the new Moses. I want you to see the new Moses. Take your Bible and let's go to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 3, excuse me. Exodus chapter 3. Let's take a good look at the new Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Are we all there? Okay. Now Moses was what? Now pay attention to that very first, uh, that word right there. Moses was what? Tending the what? Do we see a new Moses here? Does anybody, has anybody ever tended a flock of sheep before? Raise your hand. Jan, you've actually done that. That's amazing to me. That is very amazing. Well, we probably know about what it takes to be a shepherd to a flock by talk, hearing so many preachers talking about the good shepherd reference, the good shepherd reference. I want to let you know, I actually saw somebody tending a flock. It wasn't an easy thing. She had to keep an eye. It was actually a shepherdess. She had to keep an eye on all the sheep constantly. And she was always watching over them. Always watching over them. But this is different because Moses is not demanding of his flock. He's not beating his flock like an Egyptian. He is what? Tending. Watching over. There's a care. Now let's see the new Moses some more. The flock of Jethro, his what? Who did this flock belong to? It wasn't, was it Moses' flock? You want to know why that's interesting? Because when Moses was in Egypt, what did he own? Nearly everything. Now he doesn't even have anything. And here he is, he's actually taking care of the flock that belongs to somebody else. Moses has been going through a refinement process. Let's see a little bit more about the new Moses. The priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, what do you notice about the, with him and connection with the flock? He led them. That's interesting because when Moses wanting to lead a group of people, how did he try to do it before? He was using force. Now we're seeing a new Moses. And by the way, you can't... Has anybody ever taken care of a baby before? I heard that. I'm not going to address it. You wait. <laughs> okay, now pay attention to this, okay? This is extremely important, okay? Whenever you see a baby and you take care of a baby and the baby stops crying, can you reason with the baby? It's not like you can say, well, I'm going to need you to stop right now. Please take a time out for about two minutes. I need you to just get a break and we'll come back to crying. It's okay, I promise you this. You really can't reason with the baby. Have you ever seen somebody, they just get angry with their child and they put their child down and they're just like, they start yelling at their child, stop crying. Does the baby stop? Starts crying louder. You know, when you're taking care of a baby, an innocent creature, something helpless, 
You can't use the same tactics you can use with everybody else. You have to be patient. You have to be tender. You have to sit through the crying and you have to hold the child while it is screaming in your ear and destroying your eardrums. Now imagine this. Imagine this. Here's Moses. He is taking care of a bunch of sheep. Okay, now I want you to understand something. Whenever humanity is compared to an animal in scripture, which animal is it usually compared to? Someone said goats. (laughs) All we like sheep have gone astray. Over and over again you see this reference to sheep, to sheep, to sheep. It is not an easy thing to take care of sheep. They wander off. And so Moses didn't just, he couldn't just go in there and just say, I'm going to deal with you sheep. Boom, knock the sheep out. Then the sheep would follow. No, no, no. He had to lead. He had to be a tender leader. He had to guide. He couldn't say, my way or the highway. He had to watch over this flock like a shepherd would. And that's why Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And so Moses has changed. He has been refined through his years in the desert. This is not the same Moses. Now I want you to take a good look at something else about Moses. Let's keep going. Verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was what? Burning with fire, but the bush was not what? Consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. You want to know why this Moses is different than the Egyptian Moses? Because this Moses has learned to be still and to take a thoughtful look into his surroundings. This Moses is now mature. He's learned about what life is. Egyptian life is all fast-paced. It's about getting whatever you want. It's just like the, the, the Ronald McDonald society we now live in. Whatever you want, you get it, and you keep going, and you keep going. And life in Egypt was so busy. But this Moses is different. He has learned to be alone with God in the desert. In fact, that's where he wrote the book of Je- uh, Genesis. And what do you see when you're reading the book of Genesis? You see a perfect God who's communing with the perfect people in a perfect place. And so Moses was now different. So he gets in there and he sees a burning bush. And the bush is on fire, but it's not burning. And he's looking at the whole thing and he's like, wait a second. I need to check this out. Now this is what the Lord was waiting for. Now pay attention. See what happens next. Verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, what was God waiting for? What was God waiting for? He was waiting till Moses was able just to stop, to be still, and to look. See, this was no momentary encounter. God was simply saying, well, I'll judge the the redeemer of my people by whoever looks at this bush. This was nothing just very random. God had been developing Moses, and when Moses had reached a certain level of maturity in his character, when he learned to be thoughtful, he learned to slow down, he learned to take a second look, his judgment was tempered with grace. It was then that he received the highest calling given to mankind. And so God appears to him. Now let's keep going. You're going to see something very interesting. We're not even at the meat of the study, but we're going to get rapid fire into this right now. Let's go a little bit faster. Verse 5. Then he said, excuse me, God called, verse 4, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. What is God called Moses? Moses, Moses, 40 years he had stepped away from his supposed calling. 40 years, you can imagine the guilt that was on his heart. 40 years he was no longer in where his people were. 40 years he wrestled with this, and yet God said, I still know your name. I'm still watching over you. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now watch verse 5. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off off your feet, for the place where you stand is what? 
holy ground, the very first thing God has to teach Moses is that he needs to understand that God is what? Holy. You know, sometimes as Christians, we sometimes make God to be our girlfriend and we talk to him like that way too. We have lowered our reverence and our standards when it comes to realizing that God is a holy God. Look, this God who appeared to Moses, and by the way, the Bible calls Moses the meekest man that ever lived. And sure enough, he went through a refinement process. But I want you to think about this. If Moses stepped into the very presence of God and God says, take off your shoes. Now, what do you think God might be saying to us today? I love what Ellen White says right here. She says something very interesting. She said, humility and reverence should characterize the deportment of all who come into the presence of God. In the name of Jesus, we may come before him with confidence, but we must not approach him with the boldness of presumption, as though he were on a level with ourselves. There are those who address the great and all-powerful holy God who dwelleth in light unapproachable as they would address an equal or even an inferior. There are those who conduct themselves in his house as they would not presume to do in the audience chamber of an earthly ruler. Look, if I was invited by a dignitary of the United States and they sat me down, I'll tell you this, I will watch every step I take and I will make sure I am not violating any norms. I will sit down, I will pay attention. You're going to see a whole new Anel. Quiet. I'm not talking until I'm spoken to. My mouth is shut. I'm going to sit still. I'm going to be attentive. Now, if we're going to do this for an earthly ruler, how much more should we do it for the God of the universe? But here's an important principle to remember. Reverence is not a volume. Reverence is not a volume adjustment. There are people who can be very quiet in the sanctuary, yet can be extremely irreverent. Reverence is an attitude. If you come into the church of God, the house of God, with bitterness and anger and jealousy and pride in your heart, guess what? There's irreverence there. The one true sanctuary is in heaven. And we need to understand that as Christians, that reverence is an attitude. It is not a place. And it is where the plate, when the presence of God is manifested, we need to come to God with humility and a self-distrust. Folks, and I mean this with all love in my heart. But we should not be talking about the sports games Sabbath morning at church. We need to avoid those things that can stay. By the way, do you know this is the very first word, holy, where it, it, this is the very first place it appears in all of Scripture. In other words, the law first mentioned in the Bible simply teaches that whenever a word appears in Scripture the very first time, any other time it appears, it has to be connected in some way with the very first and we talk about the number 40. You see 40 represented time of cleansing during the flood. So anytime you see 40, it represents a time of cleansing. Seven, you see seven in creation, representing perfection and completion. So anytime you see seven, it represents in some way perfection and completion. Now, holy, if this is the very first word, holy, in all the scripture, what are we learning about holiness? It's a place where you take off the shoes. A place where every day of the week, the bottom of your shoes touches everything else. It's not that it's dirty. It's not that it's unclean. It's this, that. It's not holy. Holiness is tied in with laying aside the secular or the worldly things of everything day life and coming to God with a pure heart. Can you say amen to that? And this is the lesson that we need to understand, that Moses needed to understand before he could receive his great calling. 
And so God told Moses, and by the way, this same phrase appears in the book of Joshua when God sees Joshua, and Josh, God tells him, Joshua, take off your shoes. Great leaders need to understand something. If they're ever going to be great leaders, and that is that when you come to God, you must come to him in reverence and holiness. The fear of the Lord, that leads to wisdom. And we need to remember that this God is high and holy. And we need to be careful not to have these flippant jokes when it comes to who God is. And I myself is very guilty because if my whole life is about studying the scriptures and about his word, sometimes I take those things and I can make a joke, but many times the Spirit of God convicts me and says, Anel, that is not right. And by the way, you know what the third commandment is? You don't know what the third commandment is? That you memorized it when you were younger. Thou shall not what? Take the name of the Lord thy God in what? Vain. Do you know when that commandment was given that the Israelites really never took God's name in vain. They were actually very reverent. This was not actually a real problem with the Israelites. This was much deeper than just simply your words. This was about your life. That if that name is attached to you, don't dishonor it. Can you say amen to that? Well, let's go a little bit more. We need to understand some things when it comes to the word of God because we're still getting to the meat and that is this encounter that God has with Moses. Let's keep going. Verse 6, moreover he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look upon God. Now watch verse 7, it's so important. God begins to lay out his mission to Moses. And Moses, Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in what? Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their what? Sorrows. You, you want to know why God wanted the, the freedom of his people? Because he knew their what? Their sorrows. By the way, this is the same word used to describe in Isaiah 53 when the Bible says he, will, he is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Jesus knows what pain is all about. Amen? And he knows when his people are sad. The Bible says he takes your tears and he puts it in a bottle. Every time we go through this world discouraged or we go through this, this life in pain and sadness, God takes no, there is no tear hid from his eyes. And he knew the cry of his people. That was the main reason he told Moses, I want you to free them because I know they're in pain. I know their sorrows. And the Bible says the cry went up to God. That was the purpose of why God had called Moses. Now I want you to skip to the very end of that paragraph and go all the way to verse 10. We're still not to the meat yet. This is going to be very interesting when we jump in to Moses' encounter with God. A little bit more. Verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to who? Pharaoh, that you may bring who? My people, the children of Israel, where? Out of Egypt. Come now, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to have you bring my people where? Do you know this is the same phrase that's used in Revelation 18 when God is calling his people out of what? Babylon. By the way, where are the majority of God's people? They're in Babylon. Read Great Controversy. The majority of God's people are in Babylon, but they don't know it. God has people in Babylon. Remember I said this in a previous sermon? There are two churches God has. He has the visible church, i.e. the SDA church, and he has the invisible church, his people that are still in Babylon. And until his people reach a point of being safe, God keeps them where they're at. And step by step, individuals who are ready, he begins to call them out. But towards the very end, when all the explosive events take place, we're going to see a huge multitude of his people, where is his people? In Babylon. Come out of the invisible church and join the visible church. 
And so God gives us that calling today, that when we're preaching the Seventh-day Adventist message, when we're sharing the Bible truth with people, we are calling people out of Babylon. Can you say amen to that? Okay, now, this is where it gets interesting. God has given the great calling to Moses, and Moses has heard all these things. And you can imagine that scene right there as Moses is trembling and he is hearing the great calling that he has from. And by the way, I want you to think about this because Moses was somebody who fled from Pharaoh. Forty years he had left that place. And God says, I am sending you back to the mightiest ruler in the mightiest nation who has the mightiest army in the mightiest empire of the entire world. You're going to go talk to him, Moses, and you're going to go get a refund. Let's go a little bit more. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I want you to pay attention to Moses' first excuse. He says this. He said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's important. You know what Moses was doubting in his calling? His identity. His identity. He said, Lord, I think you're wrong here. You picked the wrong person. I'm nobody. I'm just a shepherd. I don't got any gifts. I don't got any talents that I can be this great leader to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. I can hardly take care of these sheep. And God says to him, and I love how God answers. Watch the response of God. Verse 12. And he said, I will certainly be with who? You. You know how God answers the very first objection of Moses by telling him, I will be with you. By the way, whenever God would appear to people in the Old Testament, do you know what he'd always say? He'd say two things. Fear not, and I will be with you. By the way, do you know what the word Emmanuel means? That was one of the titles given to Jesus. God with us. Our self-identity is caught up in knowing this fact, that God is with us. Outside of it, we don't really have an identity. And God was helping Moses to understand something. That finite power plus infinite power still equals infinite power. And God was helping Moses to understand that. It doesn't make a difference who you are. It doesn't matter what your mistakes have been. Or where you've been. Or even if you feel like that you have walked away from your calling for 40 years. He said, I will be with you. Can you say amen to that? Now watch what happens next. It's so interesting. I love Moses. And I love the Lord much better. I want you to see verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You want to know what Moses' next excuse was? What, are, what am I going to tell people when they ask, Who are you? Moses' first objection was, I don't know who I am. Second objection was, I don't know who you are. Now this is where it gets so interesting right here. I want you to see what God's response is. Verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now I want you to think about that for just a second. I am who I am. I am who I am. Now, I struggled with this for the longest time. I said, what in the world is God talking about right here? I am who that I am? It's very interesting. Ellen White, Desire of Ages, connects this title to God, and she says this is something referring to 
the self-existent one. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. In other words, because I have a mind, I exist. God was simply saying, I exist because I exist. God was simply saying, I'm here. That's what you need to tell them. You know why I know that's why that's so interesting? Because the children of Israel had been Egyptian slavery for hundreds of years, and their worship of God had been so obliterated, their concepts of who God was was simply reduced down to the Egyptian idolatry, and they cried out day and night. They didn't hear a single answer to their prayers. They were brought into the heart of Egyptian society, which is atheism, the belief that there is no God. Even Pharaoh said, who is this God? I don't know him. And God says, you tell the people, though. This is what you need to tell the people, Moses. I exist. I exist. By the way, Exodus chapter 33, God tells Moses something. I'm going to make my name pass before you. But when he does, what does he say? He gives the characteristics of, the characteristics of who he is. So notice this. The first time God gives his name, he tells the Israelites, you tell them, Moses, you tell them that I exist. The second time God tells Moses, I'm going to give you my name. And Moses said, all right. And he says, the Lord, Lord, merciful, gracious, long-suffering. And what he begins to give Moses is a litany of attributes of who he was. But in the beginning, he just needed to tell the Israelites the present truth. And that was, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. But as their understanding began to grow of who God was, God wanted to reveal more. God wanted to reveal more of who he was. And by the way, the closer and closer we come to God, the more we will be surprised of who he is. And I said this before, when Moses first encountered God, what did God tell him? Take off your shoes. It's holy ground. And he spoke to him through an angel of the Lord. And the next time you read in the book of Exodus, when God reveals his name, Moses is in the presence of God 40 days and 40 nights. He has learned to endure the presence of God's consuming love. And as he grew in, in his character and his faith, he could take a step further. He could take a step further in who God was. And by the way, what does Jesus say about the Father? When praying to him, Father, I have declared your name. Step by step, God has been wanting to reveal himself. I told this to a group of young adults one day I was giving a, a worship talk to, and it was this. Imagine if you're on an island, right? And you're surrounded by cats, little cats, hundreds of little cats. You would love those cats for a long time until you would wish that they would respond back to you in English. The time would come where you would just sit around those cats and they'd just be purring and, you know, turning on their little engines because they want attention and food. And you would think to yourself, I wish I could just talk to somebody. Why would you think that? Because the human heart craves understanding, appreciation. But if people or beings are not in that condition, it becomes extremely difficult. You want to know who I believe is the loneliest person in all the universe? God. You want to know why? Because no one fully understands him. No one fully understands him. Do you know why God craves your companionship? Do you know why he craves your friendship? He longs for it. It's in the very center of his heart. He wants you to understand him. And folks, this is something we need to grow more and more into. You know, it's very interesting. In this world of skepticism, in this world of atheism, what we find is not so much an atheistic affirmation God does not exist as being the main problem. 
It's that we don't understand your conception of God, therefore we reject it. And there's a lot of militant atheists out there that are trying to proclaim over and over again that these Christians are foolish. They're talking about this loving God because they have such misperceptions about what love is. That's why they're rejecting this God. It's funny, I even heard um, Richard Dawkins, the most published atheist, well-known atheist in the entire world. He was, uh, he was in this debate with this Christian scholar and he said, you know, these Christians... They, they call themselves Christians, but they don't even know the books of the Bible. They can't even name the first five books of the Bible. They don't even know the names of the Gospels. Who are the disciples of Jesus? They can't even name that. And he says, they call themselves Christians. And I love what the Christian debater said right back to him. And he says, he says, Mr. Dawkins, can you name for me Darwin's book, Charles Darwin's book, the complete title? He said, of course, The Origin of Species. And he says... No, the complete title, which includes the subtitle. And he said, yeah, that's easy. The origin, of, the origin of species of... Oh, God. He actually said that. Folks, I want you to understand something. It took a little while for you to get that. That's all right. That's all right. You can listen to the recording again. But people need to understand who this God is. And what God wanted to communicate to the Israelites was that he existed. And they needed to know that. When we come across people who are, who are in pain and people who don't have a hope, we need to tell them there is a God. There is a God. Can you say amen to that? Now I want you to see what happens next. Go to Exodus chapter 4. Watch what Moses says next. It's his next excuse. Then Moses said, Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. You know what these people, what Moses was concerned about? If people would question his experience with God. Oh, come on, that's just, you didn't really have that experience. You didn't really have that experience. Now I love how God answers the next excuse of Moses, okay? Go to Exodus chapter 4. I want you to see what God says in verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. And the Lord said to him, what is in your, what? Hand. Now here's Moses, right? God says to him, what is in your hand? Moses slowly turns, and he sees a stick. Watch how he replies. He said, a rod. Verse 3, and he said, cast it on the what? Ground, and he cast it on the ground. Now I want you to pay attention to this. This is extremely important. What did God just say about the ground? It's holy ground. He tells Moses, Moses, what's in your hand? Moses said, well, it's a simple rod that I use for shepherding. And he said, cast it on the ground. As soon as he took this dead piece of wood, this stick, he put it on the ground. As soon as it hit holy ground, it became alive. In the presence of holiness, death becomes life. But what God was asking Moses was simply this, what can you do? Moses simply could say, I'm a shepherd that chases after sheep. A rod, a stick. And God says, cast it on the ground. Throws it on that ground, and that stick becomes a serpent. And by the way, you want to know something interesting about this, is that that word for serpent, when it appeared in Exodus chapter 4, it's a simple, just describing a serpent. When God calls Moses to throw that stick down, in the presence of Pharaoh, the, the Hebrew word is actually the word 
That means monstrous snake. It's connected to the word Leviathan. And you read about what that snake did. It ate up all the Pharaoh's snakes. But this is extremely important for us to understand. God's not asking what you don't have. He's asking, what do you have? And when we take our gifts, our talents, our time, whatever they may be, and we say, Lord, I'm going to commit this to your holy cause, all of a sudden God takes that gift and he explodes it out on the scene. Can you say amen to that? We're going to test this hypothesis right now. Who said that? Mario. Mario, what's in your hand? Amen. What's in your hand, Jim? An iPhone. Okay. Your Bible on your iPhone. Harlan, what's in your hand? Water. Water. Amen. What's in your hand? Everyone has something in their hand. And I'm not talking about what literally is in your hand right now. That's three strikes for you guys already. What's in your hand? What are your talents? What do you know you possess that you can do? I was talking to somebody during the week. I was giving them Bible study. And I said, what's in your hand? And I said, what's in your hand? I said, you have a law degree. That's in your hand. You have talents and gifts. Every person here does. There is nobody without a gift. Every person here has a talent or gift. And God is simply saying, cast it to holy ground. And when you cast your talent and your gifts to holy ground, God makes it alive and powerful. Can you say amen to that? So if I say to you, what's in your hand? I don't want to hear what's actually in your hand, unless it's a rod. I want you to say, well, what's in my hand is a spatula. I can cook. Amen. If I say to you, what's in your hand? You say, well, I have a, a, a monkey wrench. You're a mechanic. Praise the Lord. If I say, what's in your hand? And you say, well, I have a piece of chalk. I say, praise the Lord, you can teach. But those gifts will be completely useless unless they're thrown to holy ground. Can you say amen to that? I remember that story Jose Rojas gave several years ago where he was describing a woman who wanted to be used by God and she was just complaining to God. She said, God, I can't be used by you. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. And she began to pray and pray and pray and pray. Well, one day, her husband said, Honey, can you make me some delicious enchiladas? She said, I'll make some delicious enchiladas. So she made some enchiladas for him. And as he was at work eating these delicious enchiladas, you know when you open up the Tupperware and everybody in the room can smell it? Whew. And he was eating it. One of the co-workers came to him and said, Hey, where'd you get those enchiladas? And he said, My wife made them. And he said, Tell your wife I bought some enchiladas off her if she makes me some next week. He said, okay. He tells his wife. She comes back. She said, all right. I'm going to start making enchiladas for him. And then other co-workers found out about it. And they were all buying enchiladas from this woman. Soon she showed up at the work and opened up a little stand selling enchiladas. But she did one other thing. She put Christian literature under the enchiladas. So while people were eating the enchiladas, she was noticing they would open up the literature during their lunch. And they'd be reading the literature as they were eating their enchiladas. Probably some grease stains on there, but it's all right. But folks, I want you to understand something. You have something in your hand, but it will be completely useless and dead until it is thrown to holy ground. Can you say amen to that? Folks, I make it a daily prayer. God, take my talents, my gifts, all the things that I possess, and I want you to use it. 
Sanctify me, Lord. Folks, everyone here has a special gift. And let me say this with all my heart, because I believe it. Many of you, many of you guys have gifts that have not even been completely exposed to you yet. And by the way, when you read the parable of the talents, it was only when the talents were traded that they grew. Can you say amen to that? Well, let's go a little bit more. Mario wants to finish the rest of the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. Anybody here own a green Honda? There's a green Honda on Central. Okay, if you own a green Honda, just go to the back. It's been broken into. Let's go a little bit more. We can't let the devil ruin our sermon. Amen? We're coming down to the last excuses. Come on, let's keep going. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Now watch what Moses says next. Then Moses says to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor be since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of what? Tongue. You know what Moses declared his next problem to be? He didn't know how to talk. He didn't know how to communicate. I often tell people I know two languages, English and bad English. Moses said, I don't even know how to talk. I am slow to speak. I can't even communicate with people. You know what I did? I, when, I, when I read this, when I first read this when I was in school, I began to claim this promise every single day for an entire year. Moses' helplessness to God. His cry, God, I don't know how to communicate. I don't know how to speak. And I love what God says, I will be with your mouth. God will be with your mouth. His promise is that I will be with your mouth. For an entire year, I was claiming this every single day of my life. For that year, I was claiming, Lord, you said you would be with my mouth. Lord, you said you would be with my mouth. Lord, you said you would be with my mouth. Lord, you said you would be with my mouth. And God began to open up opportunities for me to speak. Now, I really believe speaking is extremely important. I know many times we say to ourselves, well, I love what St. Francis of Assisi says. He says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I, that's a cop-out to me. And I'll tell you why. If the church was on fire, St. Mario came to me and he said, by the way, I just want to let you know the church roof is on fire. Okay, that's not happening. I want you to understand that. But if I was to say to you the church roof was on fire, I'm just going to preach the gospel at all times and not use words. I've just been told the church is on fire. You're not going to think to yourself, the roof is on fire. You're going to think, okay, maybe he had to go to the bathroom, maybe he had to go take an appointment, something. Here's the thing. Many times we need to speak, even if it just nothing comes out, even if it just blah comes out. We need to speak, we need to say something. I'd rather have somebody who makes a mistake when they're saying something than not say anything. Can you say amen to that? And so what God was telling Moses was like, I'm going to be with your mouth. I will, I will speak through you. I had a very interesting encounter this week. Now, I, I love the Lord, and I just praise God for that. I praise the Lord. He loves me more than I could ever love him. And I've just been praying. I'm like, God, I give you my talents, my gifts. I want to ask that you would bless me more, and these things like that. So I get a call from somebody or an uh, email from somebody, and they say to me, Anel, one of our, our seminar speakers at uh, GYC can't be there. We need you to speak. It's at the end of December. And I said, yeah. I said, well, I'll email them back a little bit later. Things like that. So I wasn't concerned about that. So I check on the roster list of who's speaking there. David Ashrick, Stephen Bohr, Mark Finley. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm supposed to speak next to these guys? It didn't bug me until that night. I was going to sleep and I was laying down. And it started to dawn on me. What if nobody comes to my seminar room? What 
if everyone goes to Mark Finley, what if I go there and there's, I just go there and there's like two people there. And by the way, there are thousands of people who show up there from all over the world. The only thing bigger than this in the Adventist world is the actual general conference. And so yeah, they had all the big time speakers there. And as I was there just murmuring to myself about all the difficult things, God speaks to me and says, Anel, what are you preaching about this Sabbath? Oh, the promise, God, that you would be with the mouth of Moses. I was so rebuked. I was so rebuked. Here's the thing, folks, we need to understand. God's going to call you to speak. He's going to call you to say something. And his promise is, I will be with your mouth. Even if you don't know what to say, just say something. Say something that's going to bring them to Jesus. Look, being a witness is more than just answering questions at Sabbath school. Amen. Being a witness is more than just being a, a biblical trivia ex- expert. That's what Adventists have become, unfortunately. And that's the only thing we can do is we're Bible trivia experts. People ask us a question about it, we know how to answer it. But we don't go beyond that. God says, go beyond that. Show these people love. Speak to them encouragement. Encourage them on the right path. Lift them up in prayer. Use your lips for these people. Can you say amen to that? And when you begin to realize this, you realize that God was with Moses. And Moses became powerful. And unfortunately, if you read the very end, you'll find out that Moses used his lips to speak to the rock. And it led to him not entering into the Holy Land. Our talents can become curses too. Amen? They aren't used for the glory of God, tempered by his Holy Spirit. They can become curses. Well, let's go to the very last thing. Verse 14. Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. This is the excuse I want you to see more than any other excuse. I want you to pay attention to the excuse because it's very powerful. Not the excuse, but God's reply. Exodus chapter 4, verse 13. Moses has realized God has met every single objection that he could have given. And so he's there and he's thinking of something. And finally, out of desperation, look what he says in verse 13. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. You know what Moses' final excuse was? His final pleading, his response to God? Go find somebody else. But watch the reply of God. Verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God was not angry prior to all the things that Moses had said. But when Moses said, go find somebody else, that's when God was disappointed. That's when he was hurt. Folks, we need to understand something, and this is extremely important. We may struggle in the spheres of influence in our lives. We may struggle in the various callings that we have from God. But if we say to ourselves, God, go find somebody else, that's when God's heart is broken. That's when God's heart is broken. The Bible says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Not prior to this time. It's only when Moses said, go find somebody else. God, I can't do this. And I know what that's like because many times I have been to certain things in my life where I said, God, I can't do this. Go find somebody else. It's as if I am communicating to God, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. Folks, God has had one third of heaven said, go find somebody else. He's had his most trusted creation say to him, go find somebody else. He knows what that is like. He knows the pain. And then he has a group of people The people he is trying to redeem, and they say, go find somebody else, God. I quit. That breaks the heart of God when we say that to God. Go find somebody else. Folks, we need to understand something, and that is God has a special calling on each one of our lives. Amen? We should never quit from that calling. Even when it gets, even when the fire is hot, we should never say, God, I'm quitting, I'm walking away. Go find somebody else. You're not serving man, you're serving the Lord. 
And that must always be kept in perspective. Do you remember the second son in the prodigal son story? What did he say? When this son of yours came back, you blessed him. And what would you do for me? I have served you these many years. That second son thought all he was was a slave to God. He didn't see himself as a child of God who had been called to serve God Almighty. And that's why he was bitter. Folks, we need to understand something. When God has a calling on our life, we should only let him be the one who releases us. Can you say amen to that? We should, he should be the only one that should ever say to us, it is now time for you to leave. Folks, this is extremely important for the people of God to understand like never before. We're going to be tried. We're going to be thrown in the furnace. We're going to be on some rough paths, but we need to stick to the calling that God has given us, and we need to constantly be praying for the Holy Spirit to work in us, through us, to refine us, to change us. Can you say amen? And that's why the Bible said God spoke to Moses as he had never spoken to any man before. Moses dwelt in the fire of God. Can you say amen to that? But Moses almost lost that experience. God answers his excuse. And I love the very end when Moses finally feels courage now. And this is going to be our last verse. Verse 17. After he tells him, I'm going to send Aaron to help you. Look what he says in verse 17. And you shall take this rod in your hand, which you shall do the signs. Verse 18. Then Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are alive. And Jethro said, Go in peace. Verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife, his sons, set them on a donkey. He returned to the land of Egypt. And it's this key verse. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. This is a new, bold Moses, a courageous yet humble Moses, who now takes this ordinary stick, and now it is called the rod of God, the weapon of God. And he goes there with courage. Folks, we need to understand something. God wants to use every person here. Amen. And you may be somebody who has wandered off the path 40 years in the desert, God is calling you today to follow him. He has a very special plan for your life. And you may think to yourself, well, I've been through this, Lord. What could you do with me? I've already destroyed things. And God says to you, I can still fix them. God can bring good out of the evil we cause. Can you say amen to that? God can do much. He'll restore us much more than when we were previously. God will do all these things for his servants who will trust in him. Can you say amen to that? Church family, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again. Thank you, Lord, that you are God who can be trusted and God who will never fail us. The Bible says, dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness. Lord, not our faithfulness, not our might, not our power, but by your spirit, your faithfulness, God, we choose to trust. We give our talents, our time, our abilities, our gifts, whatever they may be, whatever is in our hand, Lord, and we cast it to holy ground, the place where your presence is. Take us, Lord, and bless us, please, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com.
www.thepeopleofgod.org.